This week's Travelcast is brought to you by Depends, the most trusted, least assuring name in adult and morbidly obese toddler diaperware. Hey, I get it. There's a lethal and highly infectious virus out there spreading around the planet trying to kill everyone, and never has it been this hard to buy more toilet paper than you'll ever need. Things are rough. We'll get through it, though. In the meantime, you're washing your hands every chance you get. You're staying away from large crowds and events, trying to keep your mouth off all the interesting stuff you come across in the occasional phone booth. But you know how it is. Old habits die hard. And in any case, it's toilet paper you're after, just like everyone else. Same as it ever was. Now, for all their differences, time and toilet paper have one thing in common. You never really appreciate it fully until you run out. But hey, what if I told you it didn't have to be that way? You don't actually need that giant pallet of jumbo-sized quilted northern anymore. You never did. Those days are over, my friend. You don't have to walk the streets for money. You don't have to wear that dress tonight. Hell, you don't even have to get off the couch. Two words, folks. For those of you wondering roughly how many words I'm about to say. Adult diapers. That toilet paper you can wear like shorts and keep on using over and over. Depends. Now I know what you're thinking. Norm, why do I need diapers? The bathroom's just over there. Well, my friend, you just demonstrated exactly why you need diapers. Because you're over here. Huh. But aren't diapers for babies? Well, I wouldn't say that. Diapers are for anyone ready to start living life on their own terms. With Depends, you can do you. It's true that throughout the years, diapers have developed a bad rap because we tend to associate them with babies. And deep down, nobody really likes babies. Well, that ain't true. Oh, it most certainly is. Why, there are studies out there that suggest even babies aren't all that into themselves. You see, what we've done is conditioned ourselves throughout the countless years of human evolution to successfully fool ourselves into believing we somehow sort of stand babies, simply as a necessary means to ensure species survival. But underneath all those ancient recessed layers of carefully orchestrated self-deception, it's there, the true nature of our feelings towards those roughly four and under. In fact, it's those very faces that light up the most with pride or wonder when they look down at a baby in their arms and it's not doing anything cool that you gotta watch out for. It's that friend or relative whose smile is always the most intense whenever an oafish toddler stumbles ineptly into the center of the room like some hunched-over bell tower fiend with a mind far too simple to no shame. So instead he smiles along with your friend or relative, the blank and bubbling smile of a lunatic who has at last made peace with their madness yet has never fully looked it in the eyes. Sharp, primal eyes gleaming by ancient firelight or sometimes staring upwards all night at the still of the moon, as if simply biding its time. Babies are the worst. And as such, we ourselves are compelled to have innately negative reactions to the very idea of wearing diapers ourselves. Which is why on one cold September morning, 1984, after years of trying unsuccessfully to make their mark in the notoriously competitive incontinence industry of southern Wisconsin, the folks at Kimberly Clark & Company decided to do something big. 
All at once came the bold and shocking announcement that effective immediately they would start dropping babies in a way that can only be described as heartbreakingly rhetorical. They in fact meant they would begin pivoting product lines geared towards traditional baby demographics towards faster, newer areas of diaper demand, namely adults, those either incapable of controlling bladder and bowel function or incorrigible in their pursuit of wild and reckless bathroom freedoms once afforded to them long ago as children impossibly young, destined now as we all are to become dreamers impossibly old. Thus, Depends was born, the world's first toilet paper underwear for adults that you don't have to take off or change if you just aren't feeling up to it. I mean, you could. It's whatever. It's your situation. Your choice. The way a diaper should be. You're looking at me like you still aren't quite sure. You know, there's a reason you can't go to the store and find one square of single ply on any of the shelves. Just take a minute and stop, man. Look around you. Make sure you're not in a footlocker or something. And then remember there's a virus out there, hell-bent on killing Tom Hanks for some reason. Stock markets and banks are crashing. Countries are closing their borders and declaring states of emergency. I mean, take it from me. People have shit themselves for less. Do you really want to be walking around out there in a time like this without shorts you can't just shit in? Depends ultra-absorbent adult reusable diapers because it's nice to have a few less things to worry about. Listen up, I got 28, maybe 30 words for you folks. Stop buying endless pallets of bulk Charmin Family Ultra. There's a point where it just gets weird. Plus, we might run out of pallets at some point. Jesus. There's a time and a place to get all fixated with your anus, but now certainly isn't it. Why not go back to simpler times when you were kind of just glibly aware of its presence? With Depends, it's your time to poop. Drabblecast, episode 422. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Nothing like a good diaper infomercial to start a podcast listening experience off right. Hey, so we know you might have a lot on your mind and be bummed out about some stuff. There's a lot of craziness going on. A lot of folks are stuck places or having to stay home, shelter in place, all that. And to that end, we're going to be cranking out several episodes for you here this week and next, so we can kind of keep each other company. Women and Aliens Month starts up next week, so there'll be some great original commissioned stories, and there'll be several Drabblecast B-Sides episodes coming up if you're a Drabblecast premium subscriber. In fact, here's a little sample of something going up this week that's pretty damn entertaining, especially if you're a fan of old-time radio drama. It's called The Peoria Plague, and was originally recorded and broadcast in the early 1970s by WUHN Radio, Peoria, Illinois. And it's very much in the same vein of the 1938 War of the Worlds broadcast that Orson Welles did, if you're familiar with that. But Peoria Plague came out just a couple years after Romero got zombies on everybody's mind, so yeah, there's definitely some of that vibe here. 
and as entertaining and convincing as Orson's War of the Worlds was, hell, listeners across the country tuning in started to panic thinking it was real. To me, Peoria Plague, which most people have never heard of, beats it by a mile. And aside from the whole came out a half century ago thing, it maybe would have had me going a little too if I was listening to this on the radio today. Now the late news from the WUHN newsroom. The advisory council for Radio Bradley, the Bradley University FM station, has been recommending that President Martin Abegg uh, reactivate the station, move it to a new location, and find operating funds for the second semester. Two more endorsements for the upcoming 1972 state elections. The Lake County Central Democratic Committee has endorsed Governor uh, Paul Simon, Lieutenant Governor, for the Democratic gubernatorial nomination. And the committee also picked State Representative Daniel Pierce of Highland Park for the Lieutenant Governor's berth on that ticket. Parochiate is finally law, as you know, but it has yet to meet the final test of legality. Governor Ogilvy signed the parochiate bill into law on Thursday. There will be a court test. Mr. Ogilvy, in signing the bill, said it would provide relief to taxpayers who, he said, are forced to bear the full burden of educating youngsters forced into public schools by the closing of private and parochial schools. Uh, this, uh, this story just handed me a wide portion of the northern part of the city has been struck by a complete power blackout. Power company officials say they have been unable to trace the source of the failure, but crews are working to rectify the difficulty. Uh, thank you. In uh, what seems to be a related development, some 20 persons have been admitted to doctor's hospitals suffering from what doctors say is apparently a respiratory disorder of, of uh, undetermined origin. All those admitted are Northside residents. Turn to newsman Robert Johns for this report from doctor's hospital. Doctor's hospital is within the area affected by the widespread power blackout in Peoria tonight. Hospital officials here declined to comment at this time on the nature of the disorder affecting at least 20 persons admitted for treatment within the past hour. Speaking off the record, one doctor told me that all of those admitted were unconscious and had encountered difficulty in breathing. There is speculation that the infection may be bacterial in origin or possibly the result of food poisoning. At this time, there is little... You got the news there at the beginning of the program, right? Before zombies started doing their zany zombie thing? We're somewhere far more interesting than pre-invasion Peoria, Illinois here, folks. We're in late February of 1972, an election year, and the Democratic primaries are in full swing. Our friends at WUHN would have been interested to know that it would be progressive Senator George McGovern from South Dakota to later take on and lose to incumbent Republican President Richard Nixon. At least, that's how it played out in our dimension. That mysterious and devastating respiratory disorder wouldn't hit our Peoria, Illinois, till... Well, how about that? Today. Oh, that's just great. 
I guess uh, find out what eventually happens to the residents of, like, both Peroya, Illinois, by subscribing to Travelcast B-Sides, where you'll find monthly bonus content and episodes, not to mention a full archive featuring 81 more just for $10 a month subscribers. Head over to Travelcast.org if you're interested and subscribe. Click support the cast. Every aspect of our show is audience-supported, and we rely on weird and awesome listeners just like you to make content and share it with the world. Lots of support options there on the website. Take a minute and consider helping us out. We greatly appreciate it. All right, on to this week's story, The Full Moon Group, by Diane M. Williams. Diane's a speculative fiction writer who enjoys finding the humor and horror in everyday things. She lives in Lawrence, Kansas, with a black cat, a white couch, and a laptop-colored laptop. She attended the Clarion Writers' Workshop in 2019, and this is both Diane's first appearance on the Drabblecast and this story's first appearance anywhere. You can follow her on Twitter at DianeTheWriter. The story is produced by Adam Pratt. All music's by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech, and it's narrated by Trendane Sparks, a frequent voice on our show and others. So without further ado, we bring you The Full Moon Group by Diane M. Williams. The Full Moon Group by Diane M. Williams Time was running out for Matt, and he couldn't stand the thought of driving back home for the change again. He'd checked the address twice as he pulled up outside the ancient stone church where the meeting was being held. The internet ad said, Shifter support. We welcome all shifters. And then, down below, they added, We take security seriously. With the full moon tonight, he needed his own place to shift away from his family. Somewhere he wouldn't run into old friends and old memories. The basement housing the meeting hadn't been refurbished since the 70s. Cheap folding tables warped by decades of heavy casseroles held coffee and snacks against one wall. Folding chairs were arranged in a circle in the center of the room. Matt's shoulders sagged when he saw it. They would definitely be expected to share about themselves. He was starving, but didn't know if he could keep anything down. Shifting was terrible, feeling every bone in his body turn to fluffy white stuffing and his eyes and nose becoming plastic bits sewn on with thread. A shiver ran down his spine, and he was glad for the proof that he was still in human form for a little while. Matt loaded a few things onto a cheap paper plate for appearances. No matter how long he was there, he would never get used to the Midwest love of all things meat. Nothing but cocktail weenies and bacon-wrapped things. Not a veggie tray in sight. He tossed a couple of cocktail weenies in barbecue sauce, a cocktail weenie wrapped in bacon, and what seemed to be a cocktail weenie wrapped in some kind of baked dough onto his plate. No point in turning down free food. He kicked a chair as far out of the circle as he could get away with, the rubber pads squeaking across the floor, and poked at one of the snacks with his fork. The barbecue sauce stained the plastic tines a rusty brown color. His phone buzzed again in his pocket. Hey! A big man with a dark scar down one cheek sat down beside him. His long hair was pulled back into a ponytail and he wore a tie-dyed t-shirt that said Q-Bowl. The tie-dye really hurt the tough guy look the scar was trying to give him. First time with the group? Um, <clears throat> yeah, Matt said. Well, I'm Steve. I usually run the group here. Steve said, pointing to a handwritten name tag on his breast. In one corner, he'd added, him slash his. 
Matt hadn't thought to put any pronouns on his name tag. Uh, Matt, Matt said, shaking hands. Steve reminded him of his Uncle Joe, who transformed into a leopard print bear at the full moon. He lost an ear once during a transformation, and it was too late to reattach it when they found it behind the dresser the next morning. It left his uncle with a scar down one side of his face. Are you new in town? Steve asked. Matt ate one of the slimy sausages, nodding. College, he mumbled. I can't shift in the dorm. No, you can't. All kinds of terrible things can happen with one of us in an enclosed space like that. Matt nodded, stuffing one of the pastry-wrapped things into his mouth. Turning into a teddy bear with that many teenage boys around was a recipe for disaster. He could wake up with a permanent tattoo or stuffed into a laundry chute or worse. Teenagers were savages. Well, you'll be safe here tonight, Steve said. We're a docile bunch once we shift. While they were talking, more people trickled in and were chatting around the snack tables. Matt hadn't seen so many were-teddies before in his life. The support group back home was less than half this size. Why don't we go ahead and get started? Steve asked the group as he stood. Help me with the shutters before you sit down, please. Matt was already seated, and he didn't get up to help. The members of the group closed and locked a large metal cage over each door and window. They weren't kidding about the security around here. They'd never done anything like this back home. What was the point? All right, Steve said as he tugged his tie-dyed t-shirt back into place. Let's get started. We're running a little late tonight, so we might need to cut sharing short. Still, I want to be sure that everyone who feels like they need to talk has a chance. He gave Matt a look on that last sentence, and Matt turned away to make a study of the linoleum floors. It was the cheap kind that tended to peel up around the edges of the room. It was going to be a pain to spend the night on, but it was the best alternative he had. Matt definitely did not feel like he needed to talk. He'd talked himself out in his family's support group back home. If he could sit in the corner quietly for the rest of the night, he would consider the whole thing a success. A woman on the other side of the circle saved him by raising her hand. She couldn't have been more than a couple of years older than Matt. She wore a flower headband over her close-cropped natural hair. Her name tag read Nequisha and her hers. I broke up with my boyfriend this week, she said. The rest of the group gave knowing nods. The usual reason? One of them asked. Fuck you, Humboldt, Nequisha said. But yes, the mysterious nights away and all that. That explains the haircut, the woman next to Matt whispered. Matt only heard her as a buzz in his ear. His mind was on other things. I'm really sorry, Nequisha, Steve said, shooting the other woman a look. Relationships are hard for people like us. Matt nodded along with the rest. He was thinking about whispered phone calls on full moon days when he didn't want his parents to hear him breaking plans and increasingly needy snaps and texts when he woke up the next morning. Where are you at? Why won't you answer me? Questions that Matt could never answer. What about you, Matt? You have something to add? Steve asked, jumping on the slightest indication that Matt wanted to even be here. I, uh, I, I, I just know what she means about relationships. They all go horribly wrong after a couple of moons, Matt said. Some of us don't even get that far in a relationship, Humboldt said. It's just easier not to get close to people is all I meant, Matt said, putting his head back down. Sounds like you have some experience with that, 
Steve said. It's not a big deal or anything. I, I have a boyfriend back home, but he's not a... Uh, <clears throat> and he doesn't know I'm... I'm uh, it's gotten complicated, Matt said. He touched his phone in his pocket, thinking about Damien. The woman beside him patted his shoulder awkwardly while Matt scrambled for some way to change the subject. Steve saved him. Barnaby, why don't you tell us why you're back here this month? You'd planned a shift at home last month. How did it go? Steve asked. Barnaby wore beat-up brown loafers and khaki pants. Matt kept his head down in case these people tried to engage him again. They seemed nice enough, but he just wanted to get tonight over with. Well, my wife and I talked it over. She was okay with it on a trial basis as long as our son wasn't in the house when I changed. We both figured we could dope me up with tranquilizers beforehand and keep me in the basement, Barnaby said. Well, the drugs worked all right. I was too out of it to use the stairs. But I found one of my son's stuffed animals while I was down there. One of his favorite from our trip to the zoo last summer. It was a stuffed wolf. Hardly looked anything like the real thing, but man, he loved that damn thing. With its beady little eyes and everything, and well, I don't know what happened, really. I guess my other half didn't like it much because there was hardly anything left of it in the morning. <laughs> Tough guy like you, afraid of a pair of beady little plastic eyes? Humboldt asked. Shut up. My son really loved that thing. I had to drive two hours out of my way the next morning to replace it, Barnaby said, shaking the hair out of his eyes. And I shat polyfill stuffing for a week. The rest of the group laughed, but something was off. In wear form, Matt couldn't move so much as one stuffed paw. <sighs> that reminds me of the time I woke up muzzled deep in deer entrails. This was back in my younger days, you understand, Humboldt said. I used to drive out of the woods to shift. I was a well-fed city boy, so my other form had never been hungry enough to hunt. I'd just fight the local pack or find some piece of wolf tail, but I'd never hunted before that night. I brought the doe down just before moon set, so I shifted back with intestines squeaking between my teeth. I still can't touch those little sausages. Matt looked at the bit of sausage left on his plate, and his stomach clenched. Holy shit. These people are not wear teddies, he thought. For me, it was squirrel bones, Steve said. I woke up in bed with one jammed between two teeth. I had a heck of a time explaining that to the dentist. And they were off, swapping tails of animal parts and entrails. A growing horror wrapped itself around Matt's ankles and clawed its way into his chest. His legs itched with the need to run. He eased the plate to the ground, hoping not to draw too much attention to himself. Moonrise couldn't be more than minutes away. The folding chair beneath him squeaked on a linoleum as he stood. It fell over with a clatter of cheap metal. Heads whipped around, putting an end to their argument about rabbits and what made them such assholes. I really don't think I should be here, Matt said by way of explanation. Everyone is welcome here, Steve said. His chair didn't fall over when he stood. Why don't you sit back down and we can talk about it? Matt took a couple of steps backward, mindful of the chair folded up beneath him. I just... It doesn't seem very safe. Hey, look, you're as safe as you can be down here. The doors and windows are locked up tight. There's no one here but us wolves, Steve said. Arr! Barnaby mimicked. 
Matt retreated from the group until he backed up against the bars they'd locked over the door. They were solid beneath his hands. He gave them several sharp tugs, but he couldn't budge them. Can you just let me out? I don't want to talk about it. Steve's hand was warm and heavy on his shoulder. I can't let you go. It wouldn't be safe. The mini sausages in Matt's stomach churned as he gave one last half-hearted shake at the bars. You don't understand. I'm not safe here. I'm not a werewolf. I'm a werebear. That's okay. We welcome all kinds of shifters here, Steve said. But I'm just a teddy bear, Matt said, shaking the bars that were going to lead to his polyfill destruction. I'm going to turn into fluff and stuffing with little plastic eyes. You have to let me out of here before one of them eats me. He turned back to the group, sagging against the steel bars, and dropped his head into his hands. The bars were cold weighed against his back, freezing him to the spot. It wasn't a good place to die, but it looked like he wouldn't have any choice in the matter. It would be here, on the cheap linoleum. The room was quiet. He had his cell phone on him, but who would he call? There was no way that he could explain to the police that they'd need to rescue one grateful teddy bear from a pack of wolves when they arrived unseen. He thumbed his text messages open to the last unread. He'd been avoiding it, the little red one, making him shifty-eyed with guilt every time he checked it. I miss you. Sent three weeks ago, just after his last visit home. Matt missed Damien, too, but dragging this on wasn't helping either of them. He'd thought he could make a clean slate if he stopped going home every month. Cut it off before it went too far and Matt said something they would both regret. Cut it off before he had to say something about what he was. Have you come across any other types of stuffed wear animals? Barnaby asked in a small voice. Anything like stuffed wolves? Matt shook his head. Only teddies. Until today, I didn't think any other kind of shifter even existed. We don't have time for this, Steve said, shaking himself to action. Help me with the shutter so we can get him out of here. He grabbed one of the latches they'd put in place earlier. They were fiddly things, designed to be as hard as possible for a wolf's paw to release. Steve's fingers struggled with it as the silver plating sizzled on his skin. Matt brushed dirt off his pants as he backed up to make room. Stop it, Humboldt said. He grabbed Steve and shoved him into the wall. There's not enough time. No, there isn't. We have to let him out of here before we change, Steve said. Humboldt pulled his lips back in a feral snarl. You can't risk it. I won't let you put lives in danger because of one stupid kid. But it's my life at risk, Matt said. He grabbed the latch nearest him and fumbled with it. He had no idea how these things worked. They really took security seriously when they built them. There was no clock in the church basement, and Matt hadn't checked the time on his phone when he had it out. Moonrise had to be coming fast. He could feel it. The seconds bled out of him, soaking into a linoleum floor that had seen decades of seconds wasting away in this room. He looked over his shoulder at the window, as though he had any chance of seeing the moon through the barred glass. I'm sick of your shit, Humboldt, Barnaby said. Let Steve go. He came up beside Matt and worked on one of the latches. Matt ignored the way Barnaby's skin hissed when it touched the silver. I'm not going to let this kid die because of us. Barnaby said, and I'm not going to let you make me a murderer, because that's what'll happen if we get out of here, 
Humboldt said. I don't want to be a murderer, Nequisha said from her chair in the circle. The rest of the group sat in their goddamn circle of cheap metal chairs, content to wait and see how the whole drama played out. Matt didn't need them. He just needed these latches to release. Barnaby had the first one open when Humboldt pushed him away. The latch clicked back into place with a terrible snicking sound. Stop being dramatic. You're well fed, Barnaby said, shoving him. All you're going to do is chase some poor woman's poodle around for a while and pass out underneath the azaleas. Matt let them argue. Chasing poodles wasn't in his DNA. Fiber-fill stuffing and a stupid plastic nose were. And these damn latches were keeping him from having that DNA for as long as possible. You don't know what I've done, Humboldt said with a growl. Squirrel guts and rabbit dens. None of us want to go back to that. I get it, man, Barnaby said. The growl in Humboldt's throat started somewhere deep inside of him, somewhere that Matt didn't know was capable of human sounds. It vibrated out of his gut before it reached his vocal cords, and when it came out, it was not the sound of a movie werewolf howling in the distance, but a primal noise of a human being pushed past his limits. You don't know what I've done, he repeated, and this time the words made the hair on Matt's arms stand on end. The room was electrified with the shift that waited for all of them. Moments away now. Why don't you share with the group? Steve said. Whether he was trying to distract Humboldt to help Matt, or trying to get Humboldt to confess and help himself, Matt never knew. Humboldt showed his human teeth and snapped at Steve. I killed a man! <laughs> I killed a man! Is that what you want to hear? Some dumb hunter out in the woods at the wrong time. Woke up still gnawing on his orange vest. Are you happy? Is that what you want? Humboldt shoved Steve against the wall again, and then twice more. This is what you want me to share. Steve grabbed his jacket and pulled him close. I want you to feel safe here to share whatever you need to share. If you let this dumb kid out, then there's nowhere safe tonight, Humboldt said, knocking Steve away. Barnaby grabbed Humboldt from behind and the two fell to the floor. Tears threatened Matt. He tried to force them down, force them away so he could still think. No safety inside this room, no safety outside of it. It really didn't seem to matter whether the gate was open or closed. The latch he was struggling with slipped from his hands as his fingers pulled into his body. Brown fur sprouted from his arms as his hands turned into useless paws. Matt hated shifting. Every part of his body smashed together. He lost sight of the latch as his head dropped down three feet. Legs, once long and lean and supportive, were now useless bags of fluff stuck out in front of him. As his body settled into the new form, his head was suddenly too heavy to be supported. There was a sickening moment of vertigo, then he fell backward onto the linoleum floor, away from the door. He was left staring up at the ceiling for what he hoped would be the rest of the night, as long as it lasted for him. The screen of his cell phone cracked as it landed beside him. He wasn't going to have the chance to respond to Damien's last text. He couldn't see them, but his teddy bear ears heard the wolves all around him. There were small, hesitant sounds at first, a few steps here, a low growl there, a soft chuff in the night. The wolves were getting their bearings. Staring up at the popcorn ceiling, he heard the clatter as one of the wolves found the snack table. He thought about sausages as the squishy sounds of wolves eating worked their way into his brain. 
Heavy steps padded along beside him. A wolf stepped up into his peripheral vision. It was lanky and lean, the kind of wolf the movies used when they needed a well-built animal to take down a deer. Or a bear. A real bear. It had to be humbled. The eyes were the same. Step by heavy step, the wolf came closer. Humboldt snuffled at the ground around Matt and wrinkled his nose. His fangs showed, polished to a pearly white that morning when they were still human teeth. Matt could see that he'd added a second name tag underneath his shirt, now stuck to his wolf hair. It read, Fuck you, I'm a wolf. There were no pronouns. Humboldt the wolf came nose to nose with Matt the teddy bear. He chuffed heavily and Matt got a face full of wolf breath. He couldn't so much as wrinkle his nose in this form. He willed the universe to change things, to call the wolf away with a dramatic howl, to have a werewolf hunter break through the shutters at that moment. But there were no howls and no hunters, just the sound of wolf feet on cheap linoleum and a lone teddy bear. Matt felt a growl before he heard it with his teddy bear ears. It was a low, throaty thing that rumbled up from the cold floor. The synthetic hairs on the back of his neck trembled with it. Humboldt turned to look. Matt couldn't, but he knew instinctively that another wolf was approaching. Please don't let it be Barnaby. Please don't let it be Barnaby. His view was blocked by the wolf in front of him. Humboldt growled as he turned to engage, revealing a smaller brown wolf with shaggy brown hair that fell over his eyes. The lanky animal could only be Barnaby's wolf form. Humboldt advanced, leaving Matt alone on the floor. He listened, straining to hear the low growls and soft steps over the sound of the buffet table being taken down. If the wolves hadn't started well-fed, they were now. All except for Barnaby and Humboldt. Their claws clicked on the floor slowly, evenly. Matt imagined them circling each other. Their paws beat out a slow rhythm punctuated by growls until the movement stopped. And then the growls became a deep, snarling bark. It was fast. There were barks. There were snarls. There was the terrible sound of biting and clawing. And then a heavy thud as one of them was knocked aside. Matt didn't know who it was, but one of the wolves left the fight with a sudden yelp, and the other advanced on a soft teddy bear laying on the floor. Barnaby's wolf face with its shaggy hair over the eyes came into Matt's view. He pressed a warm nose into Matt's fuzzy belly and pulled in Matt's scent. It'll be the teeth next, with the ripping and the shredding and the polyfill stuffing everywhere. Just like his son's stuffed wolf, Matt thought. He watched the shaggy brown form make a circle around him. Barnaby stood over him for a minute more, and then the wolf curled up around him, gently folding his paws around Matt's bare form. He laid his chin on Matt's fluffy belly. Soon, Matt became aware of Barnaby's even breathing as the wolf dozed. Matt couldn't turn to look at him, but he knew that as long as his teddy bear form was pinned between those two huge paws... He would be safe here, and he took that kind of safety seriously. And that was our story. Hope you enjoyed it. Let's go now to our 100-character story winner this week, written by Drabblecast Discussion Forum member Ichabod. Here goes. 
The forensics man looked up from the nudist colony bench and frowned. Sorry, Captain, he said. This evidence is tainted. Ah, the one place on a nudist beach where the sun don't shine. Hundred character stories. We have a contest in our forums at forums.drabblecast.org. You can try writing one yourself and submitting it there in the Twitvic section. You might be next week's winner, which means we'll post it on our Twitter feed and run it here on the show. Get your twablin' on. All right, folks, that's our show this week. Travelcast is brought to you with a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. Special thanks to our kick-ass episode artist this week, Joe Stubbington. Joe's a UK-based illustrator specializing in book artwork. He creates covers and interior art for books, magazines, and websites, and he particularly loves working on horror, science fiction, and fantasy. Our program this week is brought to you by Sandra O'Dell, Adam Pratt, Bo Kyer, Tom Baker, Melissa Henderson, a single baby sock at the bottom of an old abandoned osprey's nest, Jason Smith, Samantha Henderson, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you of the time I woke up muzzle deep in deer entrails. Piano player picks up his tip jar and drink, and the bartender shouts last round. An hour ago this place was loaded. A noise filled the room like the smoke And laughter and curses spilled like booze from a glass Words were all slurred when spoke Yes, words were all slurred when spoke